Before we get started tonight, let me say a prayer and we'll just dive into this. This is a fascinating visions tonight. I can't wait to get to this. Lord, thank you so much for providing a place and a time we can come together and study your word. I pray that it would enter our hearts and our minds and engage us. And Father, I pray at the end that you would lead us in our reason, lead us in our affections to serve you more nearly and dearly. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in our last lesson, we basically introduced the book of Revelation. It is a revelation, a revealing of information or knowledge from Jesus Christ through an angel to John, the Apostle John. For the purposes of our lesson, we are going to presume that this was written near the end of John's life. He was one of the original followers of Jesus, one of the 12 that were sent out to preach the gospel. In about 95 AD, at this time John would have been a very old man, he had been imprisoned on a Roman prison island because of preaching the gospel. He had been released from there. While he was on that island, he was given a series of visions, this revelation, and it is Jesus revealing things that were going to happen. We talked about the first three chapters, if you remember the organization, the first three chapters are Jesus dictating letters to seven churches in the Roman province of Asia. But I want you to think about that as modern-day Turkey. So right near the coast of modern-day Turkey, in those days it was the Roman province of Asia. And the Romans ruled that entire portion of the world. So Jesus sends a message to seven churches. We talked about the context of the time. In 95 AD, you have a Roman emperor who thought he was God. In fact, it was very normal from that time on for Roman emperors to believe themselves to be gods, one among many gods, but they deified themselves. The persecution of Christians, and I want you to think about persecution as being more than being arrested and tortured or being killed. We talked a lot about economic persecution. That was even more widespread. So I hope that reading those letters to the churches expanded our mind about how Christians have suffered, how they have been marginalized and persecuted throughout history. But I want you to get a sense of the persecution at the time, and I want to show you a very interesting document that comes from that same time period and that same part of the world. Let me show you the... Uh, folks that were writing to each other. This is, on the left, a guy named Pliny the Younger. Think of him as Pliny Jr. And he became the Roman governor of an area called Pontus and Bithynia. And I want you to see on this map where that is. Pontus and Bithynia are very close to where we are talking about right now. So Pontus and Bithynia... You see them there in the northern part of modern-day Turkey, so Roman province of Asia. The time that this letter was written was about 111 A.D. Our churches, to whom John was writing in about 95 A.D., so just about 16 years before, are all in this area. So in other words, I want you to, to see that these letters are in the same uh, time period and they are in the same uh, area of the world. So what these letters are describing about persecuting Christians is exactly 
contextualizing what's happening in the setting for the book of Revelation. It's really fortunate that these letters have survived 1,900 years. So Pliny doesn't know how to deal with these Christians. In fact, there are so many people coming to Christ during the later part of the first century that temples, pagan temples, there are not many people worshiping pagan gods anymore. I mean, it literally changed the economy. It literally changed the culture. So many people were Christian. Well, that's a crisis for the Romans, of course. And so Pliny writes to the emperor, Trajan, who's on the right here. And I want to show you, and I'll read to you, these letters. Here's what he says. It is my practice, this is Pliny writing, my lord, to refer to you all matters concerning which I am in doubt. For who can better give guidance to my hesitation or inform my ignorance? That's just buttering up the emperor. So then he says, I have never participated in the trials of Christians. I therefore do not know what offenses it is the practice to punish or investigate and to what extent. And I have been not a little bit hesitant as to whether there should be any distinction on account of age or difference between the very young and the more mature, whether pardon is to be granted for repentance. Isn't that an interesting use of the word? We think of repentance as turning from idols to God. He's talking about, can I get these Christians to repent and come worship the gods. He said, so is it okay if they repent? He said, if a man has once been a Christian, or maybe it does him no good to stop being one, he's still guilty. Whether the name itself, just being a Christian, or something Christians do is the problem to be punished. Meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, and I need to tell you this, stop, I want you to think about this. Here's what's happening. They're not hunting down Christians. Your neighbor would call an anonymous tip line and turn you in. They would arrest that Christian, bring them in, and you'll see what he does and interrogate them. So you have people turning in their neighbors as that guy's a Christian, and I'm going to tell the government and watch what they do. He said, so in the case of those who were denounced as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. I interrogated them as to whether they were Christians. Those who said, yes, I am, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment if they don't say no. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of being a Christian, if they're that stubborn and inflexible, they deserve to die. So I really want you to think about it. This is a historical document. What he's saying is, you come in and you're a Christian, and we don't think that's a good thing. He says, I'm not sure exactly why it's not a good thing, but somebody turns you in. And I said, are you a Christian? Do you follow Christ? And he said, yes. And I go, look, let me spell this out for you. I'm going to ask you again, and if you say yes, you're going to die. So are you a Christian? Yes, I am. I'll give you one more chance. Are you a Christian? Yes. And he goes, I don't know what's wrong with these Christians, but if you won't just do what the Romans tell you and worship our gods, you should probably be killed. He said, so I execute them. He said, so I'm just writing to you to see, is this kind of how you want this thing handled? He goes on and he said, for many persons of every age, every rank, and of both sexes will be in danger. What's he saying? All kinds of socioeconomic groups are becoming Christians. Men, women, young people, old people, nobility, peasants. He said, this Christianity thing, everybody's becoming a Christian. It's not, it's not just slaves becoming Christian. Everybody is. 
He said, the contagion of this superstition, he thought it was a superstition, of course, has spread not only to the cities, but all out to the villages and farms. However, I think we can check and cure it. Turns out he's wrong, but you got to put a nice spin on it if you're writing the emperor, right? We can check and cure it. It is certainly quite clear that the temples would been, which had been almost deserted have begun to be frequented, and the establishment of religious rites, he's talking about worshiping the Roman gods, long neglected are being resumed. And now, from everywhere, sacrificial animals are coming. Until now, you could hardly find anybody that wanted to buy them. In other words, they stopped worshiping the Roman gods to the point that the Roman government got really concerned about it. Think about if our evangelism had that impact on our city or our country. Hence, it is easy to imagine what a multitude of people can be reformed if an opportunity for repentance is afforded. What he's saying to the governor is, I'm being really lenient with this. I'm giving them a chance to change their mind. I threaten them with death, and if they say they're not, then we're good. Is that what you want me to do? So here's what Trajan writes back. He says, you observe proper procedure, my dear Pliny, in sifting the cases of those who have been denounced to you as Christians. For it is not possible to lay down any general rule to serve as a kind of fixed standard. They are not to be sought out, but if they're denounced and proved guilty, in other words, if somebody turns you in and they ask you and you say, yes, I'm a Christian, you're guilty. They are to be punished. With this one reservation, whoever denies that he is a Christian and really proves it, that is, by worshiping our gods, even though he was under suspicion in the past, will give him pardon because he repented. So I just wanted you to get a feel firsthand from that very era of exactly what's happening to Christians. It would be like our government today saying, you know, if you're turned in as a Christian and they say you're a Christian, if you're not willing to denounce that, we're going to put you in jail or maybe we'll kill you. And that was the, that was the practice in the Roman Empire. So I wanted you to get a feeling for what kind of persecution is going on, and this is the context into which this revelation is being written. The key question, I want you to keep this in mind because you're going to see it over and over. The key question, if you're a Christian then and you're getting this letter from John, you're getting this revelation, these visions which are going to tell you uh, the nature of reality, essentially, are basically answering this question. It says, Christians, I know that the Roman Empire looks huge, and I know that they look like they have the power, but I'm going to tell you who's really in charge. Do you believe me? Watch when we get into this vision, because that's the essence of this revelation. It's basically to say, I know you think that the trials in your life that the forces that are against you, whether that's a government or societal pressure or just the, the evil that happens to us in our lives, he said, I know that looks so strong and you think it's in charge, but that's not actually the case. God is actually sovereign. And that's basically what this is about. So after chapters one through three, this context of persecution, we're gonna go into a section of chapter four through 19 and we'll spend some time this is a series of apocalyptic visions, and we're going to decode those. If you know the symbols, you can decode it and know exactly what this is talking about. This is a series of visions that is the information Jesus wanted them to know and wants us to know. Starting in chapter 4, Christians have looked at this in four different ways. We talked about this last time, but I wanted a quick review. This is also on your handout, just so you can refer to it. The big question for chapters 4 through 19 is this is telling me things that are going to happen. And the big question is, 
when will they happen? There have been times when Christians have thought, they were, they're called preterist view, it's a preterist view, is that these prophecies were actually fulfilled very shortly after the time of writing. These things in chapters 4 through 19 already happened a long time ago. Historicist view says, no, actually, chapters 4 through 19 and all these really uh, big things that it says are going to happen are actually kind of a secret decodable roadmap of all of history of the church from the time of Jesus' first coming till the time of his second coming so that we're actually in chapters 4 through 19 now in 2018. So it's basically telling us what has happened, and if we're smart enough, it'll tell us what's going to happen. Third way to approach it is, and this is the most, probably the most popular nowadays, at least in America, is futurist. It basically says chapter 4 through 19 is a series of events that is going to happen, usually thought of as happening in a seven-year period, but it hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen in the future, and if we're smart enough, we can figure out when. So future says these events will happen in the future. And then the symbolic, which is another view Christians have held, probably the number two right now uh, view of Christians today as they try to understand when these things will happen. Symbolic says these prophecies are actually have happened several times in the past and will happen several times again. These are recurring truths that have happened over and over and over. And I'll explain all of these a little more as we go through it. But those are the four ways Christians have really approached this book. And that's a, a framework I hope you can kind of put that on. So I want to begin by talking about two concepts. Number one is the tribulation. Chapters 4 through 19 are commonly referred to as the time of tribulation. That probably doesn't mean they're having a party, and you're right. It's a time of trials and difficulty. It's actually a time of God judging evil in the world. But there are some really interesting cataclysmic things that are going to happen. So it's called a time of tribulation. And then there's an idea called the rapture associated with it. So let's walk through a few questions first. And I want to ask the simple question, what is the tribulation? Okay, chapter 4 opens this way. It says, after this, after the letters that Jesus dictated to me, I looked, you're going to see a scene in heaven. Now we're going to begin a vision. I looked, and there in front of me was a door standing open in heaven. Does that literally mean there's a door? No, it's a vision, but he, he perceived as there's a door away into heaven. And the voice I'd first heard in the first few chapters, speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here, and I'm going to show you what must take place. So this begins a vision of John. He's seeing this vision of symbols and creatures and numbers, and we're going to decipher what that's telling him is going to happen in the future. So I want to talk about tribulation. For the purposes of this chart, I just want you to look. We'll come back to this in just a minute. But I really just want you to look at uh, this tribulation period. This is the first one up there. Forget the pre-trib, mid-trib. We'll talk about that in a little bit. We kind of need to build on this so we don't get confused. This is a futurist view. Let's say we're right here. Okay, this is where we are in time. A preterist said... The tribulation happened back here, already done. All that chapter 4 through 19 stuff already happened. A futurist said, no, the tribulation is going to happen here in our future. And in fact, 
this is a seven-year period, and it's going to take seven years, and chapter 4 through 19 will happen in a seven-year period in the future, and a future says that's when the tribulation will happen. A historicist, I want you to look down here, says, no, actually, the tribulation is happening now, and in fact, it's going to go from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. And chapters 4 through 19, and if we're here, we're somewhere in this tribulation. And in fact, when we go through, I'll tell you exactly where they think we are in this tribulation. They said the tribulation is not a seven-year period. It's not in the future. It's not just in the past. It's the whole time period. And so chapters 4 through 19 are happening now. Symbolic will say it's not a specific time. It's actually happened several times over and over. So I just want you to understand that chapters 4 through 19, depending on your view, is when you think that's happening. If you're a futurist, you don't think we're in the tribulation yet. And futurists spend a lot of time trying to figure out when is it going to start because I need to sell my stocks and bonds before this happens. So that's what the tribulation is. It is some period of time when chapters 4 through 19 begin to happen. And your view on that, on the book of Revelation, determines when you think that's going to happen. That's the tribulation. We're going to experience the tribulation for the next several lessons. Next question, what is the rapture? The rapture is, and I'm going to give you a passage of scripture where this idea comes from, but I want to tell you a couple things up front. Not everybody believes in the rapture. And in fact, nobody actually believed in the rapture as a separate event from the second coming of Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is if you believe that there's going to be a rapture, what you basically think is at some point, Jesus is going to come and swoop away all of the Christians, believers, and your clothes will be laying there, and your coffee won't be finished, and poof, you're gone. And everybody else is left behind, hence the name of that series that has popularized this kind of an idea. And so the rapture happens, and then, okay, everybody, go on about your business. Go on about your tribulation, have a miserable life. And then at some point, depending on your view, which we're going to go through all these views, but I just want you to get the idea of what we're talking about, Jesus will come in the second coming of Christ, and he will say, time to judge everybody, the world is over, we're all going to heaven or we're all going to hell. So that second coming of Christ, rapture, the idea of it being a separate event that only snatches the Christians away. That's what the rapture is. Some people believe there is a rapture and a second coming. Some people believe, no, they're the same thing. So when I say some people believe in the rapture, some people don't, everybody believes Jesus is coming again. It's just the idea of the rapture is he's coming for the believers, then he's coming for everybody. And you'll see how this plays out. It is not until historically very recently that the idea of the rapture came about. But I know that some of you are hearing this and going, I didn't realize there was anybody that didn't believe in the rapture. And I just want you to understand that has not been the norm. So I'm not making a comment about its rightness or wrongness, but I want you to understand it's actually up for debate. And one of the reasons is the word rapture doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. It doesn't appear anywhere in the book of Revelation. The idea of the rapture comes from a couple of passages, and I put them down there, and maybe perhaps another passage or two in the gospel. But essentially, let me give you an example. 
This is from 1 Thessalonians. So this is the Apostle Paul. Think about 60 AD. This is before the book of Revelation. And the Christians are wondering, what happens when, you know, when uh, we die? And what happens in the end of this thing? And he said, listen, according to the Lord's own word, we'll tell you what we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have died. Fallen asleep is a euphemism for died. He said, so you're Christians that have died, your loved ones, he said, will you ever see them again? Oh yeah, he says, you will. In fact, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage one another with these words. Now, Paul's writing to encourage them about what happens after I die. What happens to my relatives? Do we ever get to heaven? He said, the Lord will come. You'll be caught up in the air. Well, the idea of the rapture actually comes from this passage because in the Latin Bible, in the Greek, it's, there's no word rapture. But when this was translated into Latin, okay, think in the times of Jesus, uh, Greek was kind of the, the world language. Not everybody spoke it, but it was kind of, the com- kind of like English is today, only maybe more so. But then after a few centuries, think around 380 AD or so, Roman Empire, they spoke Latin. And so the church at that point had become very Roman. And so they translated the New Testament from Greek into Latin. When they translated into Latin, that word, we will be caught up, is a Latin word that is rapio. It's where we get our word raptor. A raptor is a bird that seizes its prey. And so this idea of raptor means we will be caught up into the air. That's where our word rapture comes from. We're going to be raptured, meaning we're going to be just swooped up into the air. So that word doesn't appear in your Bible, but that's where the word rapture comes from. But this is the concept. So the concept for those who believe in a rapture is Jesus comes in the air, and all those who are dead in Christ rise from the grave, come up into the air, and those who are left alive depart your clothes. And off you go, up into the air. So that is what the rapture is is. So the question then becomes, when is the rapture going to happen? That's the $64,000 question. That can generate, if you have three Christians, you'll have four opinions of when the rapture is going to be. All right, this is really interesting and we'll kind of follow it as we go along. So I want to talk to you about, uh, let me just make a couple more notes on here, just to make this a little clearer. So let's say you're a futurist. You think the tribulation, by the way, futurists, big on the rapture. Everybody else, not so big on the rapture. Very big on the second coming of Christ, but not so big on the rapture as a separate event. But futurists who think that this tribulation, and I'm not saying they're wrong, I'm just giving their view, is basically going to happen in a seven-year period in the future, chapter 4 through 19. If you think the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation, that's called pre-tribulation rapture. So if you're pre-trib, pre-tribulation, all that means is you think the rapture is going to happen before the seven-year troubles. Okay. If you are a mid-tribulation, we won't go into too many details. You think the rapture for various reasons. When we get there in the text, I'll tell you when mid-tribulation people think the rapture is going to happen. It's going to happen in the middle of the seven years. 
post-tribulation rapture is basically just the second coming of Christ. In other words, you notice that in our thing, we said that if you are a historicist, you see this tribulation, and then you have the second coming of Christ. If you are a preterist, you have tribulation here, but you also believe in the second coming of Christ. If you're symbolic, you think the tribulation's happening all over the place, but you also believe in the second coming of Christ. In other words, there's no difference between the rapture and the second coming of Christ are the same thing for three of these beliefs. But if you're a futurist, you get three choices. Now, let me ask you what you think the most popular is. You can be raptured at the end of seven years of living hell. I can say that word because it's in the Bible in Revelation. You can be raptured in the middle of this misery, or you can be raptured before the misery starts. Which do you think is the most popular? Yeah. Pre-tribulation rapture. Let's get out of here before the bad stuff starts. So in all seriousness, I'm joking around a little bit, but in all seriousness, most people are pre-tribulation rapture. So the reason for talking about this is these concepts are going to come up over and over, and I want to tie them in. I just wanted to answer the question, what is the tribulation? Chapter 4 through 19. How do people see it differently? Well, depending on when they think it will happen. What's the rapture? Well, some people think Christ will come, take the believers, then come back at a later time and judge everyone. Others say, no, he's just going to come once, and that 1 Thessalonians is talking about the second coming. The rapture and the second coming are the same thing. So I hope that kind of simplifies this a little bit because this is an area that has a lot of confusion. But we'll talk about it a little bit more as we go on. Let me pause for a moment and see if you have any questions about that, and then I want to dive into the visions themselves. Okay? Matthew chapter 24 talks about, uh, Jesus is talking about the end times, and he talks about, you know, different things will happen. One woman will be grinding, and another one will be left, and one will not. Is that the rapture? Okay, Matthew 24 is a passage I didn't put on there because it is so disputed. But it's interesting. Let me just make this really brief. Matthew 24 is a fascinating passage. It is obvious that some of Matthew 24, in my view, it's, it's obvious to me in any case, that some of Matthew 24 is talking about the fall of Jerusalem. Now think of Jesus, 33 AD, okay, before he's crucified. 70 AD, uh, what, 37 years later, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by the Roman. Some of that chapter is clearly talking about the fall of Jerusalem. Some of that chapter, though, and this is so normal in Jewish prophecy, at the same time kind of interwoven, it's kind of like, hey, wait a minute. You seem like you're talking about something a little bigger than this. Some of that prophecy may very well and probably is talking about the ultimate end time. In fact, the fall of Jerusalem, Jesus uses that and says, you're going to have the evil government in the world, the Romans. They're going to come and destroy God's city and kill a lot and persecute God's people. Well, that's exactly what happened. But you know what? He said that little historical event is actually going to play out on a cosmic scale. There's going to be the ultimate evil, Satan, and he's going to persecute God's people in this tribulation later on. So there's no doubt Matthew 24 seems to be talking about both. The problem is which passages are talking about which. If you think that portion is talking about the end times, 
then that verse about one will be working in the field, next one beside them, one will be taken and one won't, seems like a perfect description of a pre-tribulation rapture. So if you understand it that way, it supports your point of view. Needless to say, people that don't see a rapture there understand that differently. And that can be legitimately so. It's very hard to be dogmatic about it, but a, a really interesting passage. Why are there so many different ways to interpret this, and which one do you subscribe to? Okay, here's my policy on this. I'll give you my view at the end, because what I want you to do is the whole reason for doing this and talking about four different views is, by the way, these are all orthodox views. I'm not telling you they're all right, but I'm telling you they're all Christian, meaning they're all sincere, accurate attempts to understand the Bible. There are all kinds of views that are not faithful to the scripture. These are all ways Christians have looked at it. So what I want you to do is engage the text. I want you to engage our minds and let's think through, let's reason together. That's how we grow our faith. So I'll tell you my view at the end. I don't want to prejudice you now as you think this through. But why are there different views? Mainly because as people read this apocalyptic literature, and we're about to jump into it, and you'll go, okay, this is crazy stuff. What was he smoking? You know, it's visionary, and so it doesn't intend to necessarily tell you, okay, in the year 2024, Russia's going to invade Israel, and they're like, Russia, what's that? Israel, what's that? 2024, what's that? In other words, this is given in a way that actually has benefited the church, and we'll talk about that throughout all of history. So even if it's talking about the future, it doesn't lay it out that way. So Christians have been engaging it. Here's my point to you. Four major ways to look at it. Everybody agrees on everything that's really essential. And that's what I'll point out as we go through. But we wouldn't have anything to argue about if we all saw it the same, you know. Do you believe that it's written in chronological order? That's another very interesting question. Here's the question. Is chapter 4 through 19 in chronological order? If you are a futurist and you think that this is a mapping a seven-year period in the future, you think it's in chronological order. If you are a historicist and you say, no, it's not seven years in the future, but it's in chronological order, it's just telling you everything from the first coming to the second coming, you think it's in chronological order. If you're a preterist, you probably think it's in chronological order. If you're symbolic, you definitely don't think it's in chronological order. You actually think it's a little more complicated and a little more beautiful than that. So the different views see it quite differently. Futurists, chronological order. This happened, then that happened. Symbolic says he had this vision, then this vision. That doesn't mean this is going to happen before that happens. So the chronology, we'll get into it. The linearity of the chronology is going to influence how you think about it. We'll take some straw polls along the way and see, see how you're coming on that. So Christians disagree slightly about whether or not it's linear. It doesn't have to be. Going back to the passage in Thessalonians, um, is it possible that the phrase dead in Christ means not only deceased, but also not living for Christ, not a believer? Uh, is it possible that in Thessalonians, the dead in Christ could mean, it could mean, well, I suppose it could mean one of two things. Actually, it can't, but I understand why we might look at it and say, dead in Christ means believers who are dead. Or could it mean people who are dead and they don't know Christ? Well, 
let me just give you the short version of this. Contextually speaking, the fact that they're being raised with the other believers would probably indicate that they are believers. There's also some grammatical reasons in the Greek text to think that. But basically, my answer would be they're dead Christians, not just dead people. So, good questions. Well, let's jump into these visions a little bit because I want you to get a sense of chapters 4 and 5 is opening series of visions. He's seeing things happening in heaven. So, chapter 4. And I want you to read chapters 4 and 5 after we're done with this because you're going to notice all kinds of little things that I'm not going to tell you. And I'm just going to sort of tell you the story. He said, After this I looked, and there in front of me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me said, come up here and I'll show you what will take place after this. He's going to start to see some scenes. And I'm going to read to you from, uh, this is probably the English Standard Version, but basically what he says, he said, at once, immediately I was in the spirit, meaning this is a dream. You know, I understand I'm seeing a vision here. He says, I was in the spirit. And look, in front of me there was a throne in heaven. And the one seated on the throne had the appearance of Jasper and Carmelia. He's going to name all these jewels. Like, I, best I can explain to you is it's like, think of the most beautiful jewels and colors. It's like, that's kind of what this looked like. So he sees a throne with this beautiful uh, figure seated on it. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. He said, and there came flashes from the throne. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. What are threes mean? It's divine. When you see things in threes that are talking about God, you're going to see them occur in threes because three is a divine number. So you see three things. You see even in little ways. He said before the throne, and in front of the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are, it's going to interpret what they are, the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was what looked to me like a sea of glass, like crystal. So here comes a lot of imagery from Christian songs, by the way. You're going to go, oh, ding, ding, ding. I've heard these phrases in Christian songs. So he said, I saw a throne and like a big crystal sea in front of it, and I can't even describe who was sitting on the throne. I want you to see the contrast here. In the letters to the churches, the letter to Pergamum, he says, I know where you live where Satan has his throne. In other words, that's the seat of Roman power. It's the seat of Satan's influence on the world through raw coercion and military power and evil. Now, what are you seeing here? You're seeing a vision in heaven of a throne that is magnificent. You're seeing the contrast. That throne is a symbol of Satan's power. This is God saying, let me show you where the real power is. And so he begins to see this vision of a throne. This throne is kind of mentioned before. I want to show you this passage from Ezekiel because in Revelation you get all this imagery pulled from the Old Testament. So if you're a believer in that time, you've been reading the Old Testament too. You want to know everything about this God that you serve and you love. Here's what Ezekiel saw in another apocalyptic vision. Ezekiel is seeing this about uh, 600 years before the book of Revelation. He said, above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. In other words, it's kind of a human figure. 
I saw that uh, what from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal full of fire. From there down, he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds. So this imagery is being used again. So was the radiance around him. He said, and here's what I was seeing. I was seeing the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. In other words, I wasn't seeing God. I was seeing the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And it was that brilliant. So I want you to see the tie-in, too, between Revelation and everything else God has done. Revelation doesn't just pop out of nowhere. It continues that story of God, and it uses the images. You're going to see Rome and Babylon and thrones, and you're about to meet some weird-looking angels. But they all appeared first in the Old Testament. So you see the throne of God, and it's a way of God to saying, let me show you the true reality. Let me show you who's truly on the throne. From there, he sees this. He said, now, around the throne... There were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were clothed in white garments, and they had golden crowns on their head. What are white garments? What do we say the same? What's garments? Clothes or character. So white garments mean they're righteous. They're faithful. They've been faithful to God. I don't mean that they've done good deeds. It's not like you earn your white garments. You are given white garments. You're going to see all through Revelation, people get given white garments. Why? Because their faithfulness means God makes you righteous. In other words, God cleanses us from our sin. So they're righteous people, and they're sitting around this throne. They have crowns on their head. Two words for crowns in Revelation. One is uh, Stephanos. So if your name is Stephen, it means crown. It's basically the crown you give a victor, someone who has run the race. Remember Paul saying, I've run the race, and the Lord will give me a crown of, of life. This is that crown. There's another word, and when we get to it, I'll tell you what it means. But basically, they are faithful people who have served God, and here they are. So who are they? Well, no one knows who these elders are, but here are a couple of interesting ideas. If you think the rapture just happened, and by the way, if you're a pre-tribulation rapture, in other words, you think the rapture happens before the tribulation, it needs to happen right at the start of chapter 4. And so that little verse 1 where it says, John said, he said, come up here, they go, oh, that's when the rapture happens. That's symbolic of the fact that the rapture is going to happen in chapter 4, verse 1. So they think maybe that's symbolic of the church, all the, all the Christians of all time, and they're here. Another view which is interesting, says you've got 12 tribes of Israel. So you have 12 patriarchs, meaning there are actually 12, 12 people, 12 sons of Israel became the people of Israel. So you've got the 12 patriarchs. You have the 12 apostles. So you have all of God's people in the Old Testament, and you've got all of God's people in the New Testament. You put them together, and what do you have? All of God's people. So maybe the elders represent all of God's faithful people standing there around the throne of God. But in actuality, and there seem even weirder ideas than that, but in actuality, nobody knows who they are except they're obviously righteous, faithful believers. So that's who uh, these elders are. He goes on then to say, but also around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. Now I want you to just think about this for a minute. So we talked about if three is the number of divinity, what's the number of created things? Four. 
right? So the number four represents the created world. There are four created creatures, four living creatures. These four living creatures, so they symbolize all of creation. And by the way, angels are created beings too. Angels, uh, humans, animals, the universe, that's all created beings. And these creatures are full of eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature looked like a lion. The second one looked like an ox. The third had the face of a man. And the fourth living creature was like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them had six wings, and they're full of eyes all around. And day and night they never stop singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So who in the world are these four creatures? Well, they're obviously quite symbolic, aren't they? If you think about it, the fact that they're four creatures means they're somehow representing all creation. In fact, the Jews believed, and in the Talmud, which is a Jewish document, they believed that the lion was the strongest wild animal, the ox was the king of all domesticated animals, the eagle was the king of all and the strongest of all that flew in the air, and man was the pinnacle of creation. And so they thought those four creatures symbolized all of creation. Well, there's no coincidence that that's what these creatures look like. You're going to see these same creatures also in Ezekiel and Isaiah in the Old Testament. The fact that they have six wings is very interesting, but if you take, I'm going to give you these references so you can jot them down, by the way. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 1, creatures that look like this are called cherubim, C-H-U-R, or C-H-E-R, excuse me, U-B-I-M, cherubim. So if you ever heard of a cherub, you know, or cherubim, they're angels. In Ezekiel 1, creatures that look like this are called cherubim. In Isaiah chapter 6, you see another vision of creatures kind of very much like this with the six wings and so forth. There, they're called seraphim, S-E-R-A-P-H-I-M. So basically, what I'm saying to you is these appear to be angels in some form, but the fact that they look like this is very symbolic of what they're representing. They are representing all the created world. And what are they doing? They're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So the elders are worshiping God, which you'll see in a second, and all the created beings are worshiping God, and you kind of see this coming together. Then one of the elders... Uh, actually, let me read a little bit before I get there. So whenever the living creatures give, count these, glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, this is God, they're giving him divine honors, who lives for and ever and ever. When they do that, the elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him. They cast their crowns before the throne saying this, worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, three things, for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. It's a scene of worship in heaven. And so what's it saying to us though? The throne, he's communicating this, he said, I am the true sovereign of all creation. All of God's faithful people are here with me and worship me, the elders. All created beings, that's what those, those four creatures represent all created beings give glory and honor to me 
not to the Roman emperor. And so he's seeing this scene of worship in heaven. Make sense? Okay. So what happens next? He said, then I saw, I looked, and in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne was a scroll written on the front and on the back, and it was sealed with seven seals. Oh, my goodness. We got sevens all over the place. Sealed with seven seals. And I saw a very strong angel, think Arnold Schwarzenegger angel, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals and read what's inside? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, in other words, no one anywhere was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep because no one was worthy to look at the scroll. Let me talk to you about the scroll before we go on. What is this scroll? Sealed with seven seals. Well, there's a Roman tradition that uh, scrolls like this, documents like this, uh, were often wills, and that you would have your will attested to by seven witnesses. That's not necessarily common people, but if you think about the upper classes, they would write a will, they would have it, and you attested to it instead of signing your name. You put some wax on there and you put your personal seal on it. And so it was sealed. Couldn't be opened or somebody would know it had been opened. When you die, they go, okay, break the seals. Here's what he said. Uh, kids, you get nothing. And, you know, whatever. But basically it would have seven seals. So maybe it's some kind of a last will and testament, kind of a disposition of the earth. In Jewish tradition, you kind of see this idea of, of seven seals around deeds, Deeds to property were written like this, kind of like your, mor you know, your mortgage deed, your deed to your property. It would be rolled up in a scroll, written on it, and then it would be sealed to certify, saying, you know, the government says this is your land. So you get both of these ideas, and so people hypothesize this is symbolizing in some way God transferring some kind of ownership. Who can come from God and take ownership of creation? And John said, nobody. Nobody's righteous enough to go up and say, I should be the ruler of all creation. And so he begins to weep. And then it goes on and it says this. Then one of the elders said to me, don't cry. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Old Testament reference to the Messiah, the root of David, Old Testament reference to Jesus, has triumphed. He's risen from the dead. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So then I looked. I'm looking for the lion of the tribe of Judah. But what does he see? Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sits on the throne. So what's happening here? This is obviously Jesus, and it's Jesus in both of his descriptions. The Jews had trouble with the Messiah because on the one hand, you get things like this is going to be the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he will come and he will destroy your enemies. He will destroy evil. Quite true. And so he said, this is going to be the root of David, meaning one of David's descendants. And he's going to come and set up the kingdom. So what are the Jews looking for at the time of Christ? Looking for a warrior king. Like David, come and, you know, beat the Romans and, hey, life's going to be good. But at the same time, you've got passages in Isaiah saying he was a suffering servant. He was beaten for our sins. He suffered without complaining. And you get this suffering servant. In the New Testament, he's called our Passover lamb. 
all our sins were placed on the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God. So you get these dual images in the Old Testament, and Jews are like, what, what, what is it going to be? Is he going to be king, or is he going to be a sacrificial lamb for us? And the answer in Jesus is, yes, he is indeed both. By becoming the sacrificial lamb to bear our sins, he has defeated evil. He has defeated death. He is raised from the dead. So you see him described as a lion, and you see him appear as a lamb that had been slain. He has seven horns. You're going to see a lot of horns in Revelation. Here's the simple clue. Horns mean power. They mean strength. Sometimes it's military strength. Sometimes it's, it's other kinds of strength, but they always mean power and strength. What do seven horns mean? Seven is completion, perfection, totality. Seven horns means total power. Eyes typically refer to knowledge. And so seven eyes would be omniscience. So what's he saying? There's Jesus Christ. He's omnipotent, all-powerful, and he's omniscient, all-knowing. That's all that means. In other words, he saw the lamb that's been slain with seven horns and seven eyes. In other words, that's Jesus Christ. He's God. He's all-powerful, and he's all-knowing. That's what it's telling you. He said, when I looked in heaven, I saw all the creatures, all the elders around the only one who's really worthy to take the scroll from the Father and say, I am the Lord of all creation. That's what it's saying. Does that make sense? Does that help you kind of interpret Revelation? Good. Well, it's complicated a little bit. This is great. So I want to end this, though, by just a crescendo, because this vision ends with a crescendo. Listen to this. Just listen as I read this. So he says, um, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one of them holding a harp, and golden bowls full of sweet-smelling incense, which, by the way, are your and my prayers. And they sang a new song. And here's the song. They sang, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. You ransom people from all of creation for God, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and outside the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering thousands of thousands and ten thousands of ten thousands, saying in a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and everywhere saying, to him who sits on the throne, to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. If that was a movie, it would be like, blowing your hair back. You know, it would be like the big scene in Star Wars, right? That's what this image is. It's like, okay, John, just want to let you know, this is what worship services look like in heaven, right? The symbolism is basically telling you what? The real power in the world, despite what it seems to you, is God. And all of God's people and all of creation will worship him and you saw the fours, you know, all creatures worshiping you, the seven, 
all glory and honor and power belong to you. I just want you to notice, even the number of adjectives are chosen to be symbolic of what it's saying. So all glory and honor and power resides with God. That's what that vision is really saying, is Jesus is the Lamb, omnipotent, omniscient, the only one worthy to take the scroll and be the Lord who is going to judge all of creation. Because trust me, that's what that scroll is really about. And so it's going to judge all of creation. And everybody worship the Lord saying, you are good and holy and true and just and powerful. That's what chapter 4 and 5 is. That's the opening vision. That's just the beginning. That's not even the good part. That's just act one. But I want you to get that feeling about what's happening here. And the reason I do, do we have any questions before I jump into that? I think we have time for a couple. Yeah, we do. Can we go back to the very beginning when you were talking about um, plenty? Can I just repeat everything? No. Yeah. No, I'm just Can I kidding. ask a couple questions about that? No, go ahead. Um, what was the source for the correspondence that you were quoting from Pliny to Trajan? Uh, it comes from, well, you probably saw it on the thing. It comes from a, you can find it. If you want to look it up, look up Pliny's letters. In other words, there's a collection of letters from Pliny. I'll flip back here so those of you that are actually watching, because I can't remember it, but I put the citation on it. I like to deal with primary sources. There you go. Uh, Pliny, letters 10.96. Thank you. Look that up. You'll find them. And then in Trajan's response, he says uh, that they should be worshiping our gods to prove that they're not Christians. What uh -huh. would that look like in reality? What would it look like to worship their God? Trajan said if they're willing to repent, I just think that's so interesting. He uses the same word. Repent and serve our gods, then they're good. What he means by that is make a sacrifice. It, it varied in time, but it's one of the things like this. It's uh, a little bit later. Uh, I'm going to show you next week. I'm going to show you an unbelievably cool letter from about 150 A.D. I'll just save it till then. But for this, uh, basically, he's going to want you to at least acknowledge the gods, say they're gods, that you, you don't worship Christ, spill a libation, more often make a sacrifice of some kind. Then I'm going to tell you about a specific Christian guy next time who in 150 AD, so it's a little bit later than this, exactly what happened to him and what they were asking him to do. But in general, worshiping the gods means making some sacrifice or some public demonstration that I believe they're gods. Christians, some Christians did do it uh, and fell away. I mean, that's what other Christians thought about them. Most Christians say, we will not say that those gods are God. There's only one God and one Lord. And, so, and they died for it. They died in the tens of thousands for that. Is there any connection between uh, Revelation and John's other writings? Are there contextual clues or literary clues? Yeah, are there contextual or literary clues or relationships between the book of Revelation and John's other writings? And let's assume, and I'm going to assume, that the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, all attributed to him are indeed written by him. And I'll always make that assumption. So, no, there are not strong, in my view, strong connections, but I want you to understand I don't expect there to be because the Gospel of John is narrative. First, second, and third John are letters that were written, typical letters of the time. Gospel of John is apocalyptic literature. It would be like saying the guy who wrote the fine print on your cell phone contract, can you tell that that's the same guy that just wrote the mystery novel? 
no, I can't. Maybe they are the same guy, but I couldn't tell you that. So I don't think so, but that's very reasonable to me. Totally different kinds of literature. Good question. Okay, in Revelation um, 5, 6, the ESV says, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb. The NIV is what you have up there that says that he was in the middle of the throne. The lamb was in the middle of the throne. Are we talking about a throne like we think of a throne, like the queen sits on a throne, or are we talking about a throne room? Yeah. Yeah, that's just a difference in a good question. The question basically is in the translation between the ESV and the NIV, and we're getting granular. You guys are very nitpicky. But basically, it's just a difference in how they're translating the word. There's not a different text behind these two texts. Maybe that's the real reason to ask is, are there different Greek texts here or the different Greek words? There are not. Those are different translator choices. The question then is, is what is it trying to tell us of exactly where is this lamb standing? I don't know exactly where the lamb is standing. Okay, so we'll stay up here just a little bit. Lamb standing somewhere in the throne area. Elders are around, four creatures are around, million angels are all around. I appreciate that detail of attention to it, but that's a different translator selection of, of the words trying to give you a feel for it. Well, let me summarize this with a practical application because there is a practical application. No matter whether you're a futurist and you think all this stuff's going to happen in the future or a preterist, it all happened, fall of Jerusalem or something, or symbolic, it happens over and over. Whatever your view, here's what's really going on here and everybody would agree. The fundamental truth is this. This is God challenging you, by the way. This is a challenge. He said, I know that in your life it looks like the forces of evil the forces of wrong, of injustice, of oppression, of persecution, of just people doing evil things to people in the world. I know that looks so strong and you think, how can we stand against that? How can we Christians change the hearts of murderers and thieves and vicious people and fanatics? It's too strong, Lord. The power here is so strong. That's what they thought, and in fact, they had very good reason to think so, didn't they, in the first century, because they're literally being persecuted. He's saying this, he said, I know it seems strong, but I'm going to reveal something to you, a revelation, and my John's going to tell you what it is, and here it is. He says, if you could see the true reality, God is sovereign, God is on the throne, and everything moves toward where God is going. Not everything that happens pleases God, but even evil is going to be moving toward where God is going. And he's going to show you where that is in this book. He says, do you believe that? That's essentially what he's saying is, do you believe that what you see? Remember Paul in Ephesians 6 said, our battle's not against flesh and blood. He said, I know it looks like you got evil here, and you do. He said, that's not really our battle. Our battle is against against the forces and the principalities in the heavenly realms. He said, Satan is behind this. And God said, I'm on the throne, not Satan. Do you believe that? And here's how it really matters to you and me. That's called the sovereignty of God. That's a theological word, but that's all it means. I believe God is on the throne, not Satan. I think no matter what evil is in this world, God is bigger. Remember when Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart? I have overcome the world. What's he saying? He's saying Revelation 4 and 5. If you understood the real reality, you would know God's actually in control. God's actually sovereign. 
The sovereignty of God, that's what it means. So if you believe in Jesus Christ, you believe in the sovereignty of God, that means you believe in evil. You believe bad things can happen to you. You believe there are evil people in the world. But you believe that this is going somewhere and that God is going to set it right, that God is going to punish evil, that he is sovereign. Sometimes we walk around with a very weak view of God's sovereignty. We think, oh God, can't wait to see you in heaven. Hope to be there soon because I'm just slugging it out here as hard as I can. That's a weak view of God's sovereignty. You can't survive what they were surviving in the first century with, a, with an anemic kind of view of God's sovereignty. That's why God gave this vision. He said, I want you to see the reality of the glory and the power. Trust me, when John saw that, he thought, Satan, Roman Empire, you're Bush League. He said, this is the sovereignty of God. You and I need to keep this vision. We need to read the book of Revelation way more than we do. Whatever is challenging you in your life, you read chapter 4 and 5 and you go, that's my God. I believe in that vision. A strong view of sovereignty of God, a strong faith in God's power and his might is what enables us to withstand temptation, it's what enables us to transform, to be transformed. It's what enables us to overcome evil, even when evil looks surpassingly powerful. Does that make sense? That's why this vision is here. It's for you and me as well as for them. Everything you face today, if you have a strong view of God's sovereignty, if you could see what John saw, you would go. You would say exactly what everybody in the New Testament says. Here's what Paul said. He didn't see this vision, but he believed in that sovereignty. He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present world are nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Romans chapter 8, he said, I'm suffering, and believe me, Paul suffered more than I certainly have, I suspect more than you have, and he said, this is nothing compared to the glory of God. I want you to go through your week thinking about this vision and saying, these things are bad, but they're nothing compared to the glory of God. Okay? That's your challenge this week. Thank you. Next week, he starts opening the seals and literally all hell breaks loose. So that's what we're going to talk about next time.